Mark Lynch, director of POMAPS. Welcome to the 13th season of the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we begin by talking to Alice Wilson about her new Stanford University Press book, Afterlives of Revolution, Everyday Counter Histories in Southern Oman. After that, we talked to three contributors to a new edited collection produced by Century International. Uh, it's called Shia Power Comes of Age, The Transformation of Islamist Politics in Iraq, 2003 to 2023. That's edited by Thanasi Kambanis and Sajad Jihad. And on this program, we talked to Sajad Jihad along with Marcina Shamari and Fanar Haddad. Uh, thanks for listening to our program. Now let's get to our conversations. <laughs> This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Alice Wilson at the University of Sussex and the author of the recent Stanford University Press book, After Lives of Revolution, Everyday Counter Histories in Southern Oman. Uh, Alice, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. So it was a real pleasure to read this book. Not much is written about Oman or about the uh, the Dufar Rebellion. And so tell us a little bit about how you got to this book and what you, what you were trying to accomplish with it. So I came to this project through a longstanding interest in revolutionary social change and how it plays out over time. So previously, I'd looked at that in the revolution and liberation movement in Western Sahara, which is a, a movement that's kept going. It's still active today. That was my first book. And then when I was thinking of this second project uh, about Oman, I wanted to ask a different question about how revolution uh, could survive military defeat. And Oman's, and Dofar in particular, is a really interesting to, case to pursue these kinds of questions because Dafar had a very significant revolution and counterinsurgency. And uh, we um, know relatively little about the lives of the people who took part in the revolution after the military defeat by the counterinsurgency. And it's quite difficult to know that for a number of reasons, including the authoritarian situation in Oman. And there's an official silence about that revolutionary past. So I'm an anthropologist. And I was hoping that through ethnographic research, spending time, I would be able to meet some former revolutionaries informally, get to know more about their lives. And through that lens, be able to ask questions like, so what can survive of a revolution after military defeat? How does it survive? And then this counterinsurgency that went on to acquire a reputation as a model counterinsurgency, if we find that um, legacies have survived the revolution, then you know that makes us rethink that supposedly model counterinsurgency and the further limitations within that narrative because precisely, you know, revolutionary legacies have survived. And then more generally, if we find that legacies survive of, of a revolution after military defeat, what kinds of new questions do we need to ask about revolution and counterinsurgency and their legacies? So these questions are obviously uh, very much relevant for Oman, for Dofar, but more broadly for revolutions that end in overwhelming backlash and repression. And of course, these have become really timely questions for Southwest Asia, and North Africa because of the revolutions that began there in 2010 and 2011 that overwhelmingly met with, with backlash. Um, and so through those Omani experiences, we can reflect more broadly about how those revolutions, uh, despite those disappointments, can go on to have lasting impacts too. 
Yeah, that's a that's a really great connection to draw out. And I think that's going to be a prominent theme in, um, you know, people trying to make sense of the aftermaths of the um, of the Arab uprisings. Let's go back to Dofar itself. And um, I know that the, the book isn't necessarily about the global history of the rebellion, but you have a lot of really interesting things to say about the organization of the rebellion itself and kind of the way that it kind of worked from within Omani society. Talk us through this a little bit and kind of what we need to know and what you learned about the organization of the insurgency and what it meant for um, like during during the, the rebellion itself. So it's a movement that uh, began in out of heterogeneous origins, as is the case for uh, revolutionary movements more broadly, and then transformed over time. So we have a um, a history here of um, what Defaris experienced as um, outside rule um, from the late 19th century, from the British-backed Sultan. So there have been several uprisings against uh, that rule from the late 19th century in the earlier part of the 20th century. And then um, I was able to stand on the shoulders of giants who've been working on uh, histories of um, uh, these kinds of movements in the region and, and uh, intellectual histories, migration histories. And uh, so they, those studies have helped us understand how Dafaris who had been uh, migrating outside Dafar in the 50s and 60s in pursuit of work and education and because of civil limitations in Dafar. Um, and they mobilized around uh, the um, ideologies of decolonization, especially Arab nationalism. Some of them mobilized around leftist ideas. And so we get those strands interacting with those also indigenous political ideals about um, valuing autonomy from perceived outside rule. So we get these mixed uh, ideologies in among the founding group in 1965 when the focus is on liberating Dofar. And then um, the changing regional and international context sees the movement transform. And so by 1968, there's a uh, leftist leadership that comes to power there. They um, overtly embrace Marxism, Leninism. They take a lot of inspiration from Maoism. And so that's partly what makes this such an important revolutionary movement in the region in terms of it gets ambitions to try and liberate the uh, what they perceive as the occupied Arabian Gulf. So from both British um, formal colonialism and informal colonialism, they get these very ambitious projects to scale up the emancipation of society. So a social revolution and then you know, images of that circulate very widely uh, around the world. So it, at the time, it was really on the map of revolutions. Um, but also that uh, rise of leftism scales up the alarms for mm -hmm. the British-led counterinsurgency and the fear of a spread of leftist ideas that could threaten access to uh, oil resources elsewhere in the region. And so the counterinsurgency also scales up. Britain mobilizes resources from allies, especially Iran and Jordan. And uh, so we get a... Uh, um, you know, a larger scale counterinsurgency. It also develops um, a kind of, you know, what they've called their, their hearts and minds branch to it. Mm -hmm. And um, so we, you know, get to a situation where in the end, there's, you know, a military defeat for the front. They get pushed into exile in, in South Yemen, where they continue as a, a political opposition until the early 90s when they lose that, uh, that basis with the fall of socialism there. So it's a movement that's really in dialogue with and um, responding to and 
um, drawing energy from a lot of regional and international changes. Yeah, I find that transregional and uh, transnational component of the story really, really interesting. And it's, 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 it's amazing how much this is forgotten, considering how important it was at the time. Um, but let's go back onto the inside then, when the rebellion is actually happening. And, um, you know, the kind of the leftist ideas, the social revolution that you're talking about. Uh, in the book, you have quite a bit of really fascinating detail about like the schools, the camps, the changing gender uh, relations. Um, and I think people would like to hear about that. So this uh, was a movement that had very big ambitions around transforming uh, social relations. Uh, and um, that took a lot of inspiration from, from, from Maoist uh, ideas. Um, so uh, yes, you know, schooling access had been extremely limited before the revolution. There was only one school that the former, uh, you know, the Sultan at the beginning of the war allowed, and it only catered for boys from um, Urban, well, urban is perhaps a misleading word. The coastal families in the in the in the small settlements there, from families close to the Sultan, um, so nobody from the interior, the mountain interior, and of course no, no girls. So um, the uh, revolution had uh, schools that catered for uh, boys and girls studying alongside, but they promoted literacy in the military training camps as well. Uh, they set up uh, committees for popular participation of how to administer justice, you know, how to resolve disputes. Um, there was a women's organization uh, that grew out of um, grassroots initiatives uh, that were foregrounding women's issues, things like how to collectivize childcare. Uh, so um, we see organs of the revolution more formal, organs taking up initiatives that, that Defaris had been uh, involved in. Uh, so, um, it's it's a time we have some eyewitness accounts of people who visit and they really recall and you know images circulated of people you know they seem so um, caught up with these changes um, you know a lot of people carrying um, uh, you know uh, left wing um, uh, uh, political materials reading them you know people listening to the radio engaging in discussions about you know international affairs so it was a very um, effervescent time for. Uh, social transformations and um, uh, popular engagement. Of course, all revolutions are very complicated and they meet a lot of um, backlash and they perceive also internal and in also encounter you know, internal threats. So you know, it's important also to mention that um, this was also a movement that did discipline people that they perceived as internal threats. Uh, and of course, the counterinsurgency was also working by trying to recruit people to pass on information, etc. Uh, so um, yeah, a time of lots of high stakes, but definitely a lot of projects for transforming society. Now, the, the heart of the book is really, as the title suggests, the afterlives of the revolution. And so, you know, you talk about the uh, the, the victory of the counterinsurgent, the victory of the counterinsurgency, um, and it clearly was in military terms. But your reading of what actually happened is a bit different from that in terms of like who actually won and, and what actually happened in the aftermath of that victory. Thanks for the chance to reflect on this. So there are lots of different local accounts uh, of what happened. So the book uh, tries to you know, engage and, and take seriously, you know, it, that's part of the ethnographic impulse right. to try and understand you know, how have people understood 
their experiences? How do they make them meaningful? Uh, so there's a local discourse among uh, Dafaris that we find from as late as, I should say, as early as the late 1970s. So the war officially ends in 1976, where um, there's an earlier social scientist who did fieldwork in that earlier period. And he reports how Dafaris would tell him, you know, we won the war. And um, we can assume that they mean things like they had established this agenda for social transformation, that parts of that agenda, the counterinsurgency took up. Um, there are times, for instance, where Dafaris, who were recently recruited to pro-government paramilitaries, put down conditions for continuing that participation, such as the government buying their cattle at favorable prices. Um, so we can see that from a Dafari perspective, there are lots of ways in which they managed to get things from the counterinsurgency that they hadn't got you know, before the revolution. And of course, um, the Brit British end up you know, orchestrating the coup to remove Sultan Qaboos. And uh, again, we're fortunate to have such excellent um, historical work from Abid Takriti and others showing how actually revolutionary agency had been part of um, how that coup eventually happened because there'd been an earlier revolutionary attempt to assassinate Said, and then Britain was worried that the revolutionaries would eventually succeed. Uh, so um, those are all kind of local accounts of what's happening. Um, so I hope that what the study can do is bring, you know, bring those into perspective because of course there's a risk that the more you know, dominant uh, narratives within Oman from the government, which is, first of all, an official erasure of, of the revolution, so not to talk about it at all. But then outside Oman, there's the competing account of the model counterinsurgency thesis suggesting that it won the war because of a hearts and minds campaign and it had minimal uh, violence that impacted civilians. Uh, so uh, the book you know, aligns itself with other scholars working in the field who question that um, triumphalist narrative about the counterinsurgency for all kinds of reasons, including the, the intense use of violence. Mm -hmm. um, but in drawing attention to these Dafari narratives about how they perceive that they won the, fought, won the war, I hope that what the book can do is help retrieve some of that revolutionary agency that's otherwise at risk of, of being erased. So um, I absolutely would um, go with the very convincing scholarship we have about the importance of coercion in, in winning that conflict. And that fits with wider scholarship about the importance of the use of coercion in counterinsurgency victory, contrary to accounts that might suggest, oh, you know, to be successful, a counterinsurgency needs to avoid violence, needs to have a hearts and minds campaign. So there's broader scholarship and thinking, especially of the work of Jacqueline Hazelton that questions that. And so I would, you know, align myself with that scholarship. But by talking about these Defari accounts, in a sense, I want to question the erasure of that revolutionary agency and how revolutionaries were the authors of initiatives that began transformations of space and society and are the authors of initiatives that went on to have lasting effects because of how the development agenda continued to be important in the post-war period. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And um, and uh, and one part of it also, as we turn into the afterlives, is the amnesty programs where uh, a number of members of the insurgency and leaders actually are just brought back in and many of them thrive. Yes, I... I have more of a focus in the book on less high profile uh, mm -hmm. former um, uh, revolutionaries, but indeed they're absolutely a heterogeneous group. And that's one reason why um, 
I insist on the plural afterlives of revolution to try and acknowledge that there's no one unitary experience of, of being a former revolutionary and you know, intersectional background plays a part of that and also political positioning. Of, but it, of course, some of these former revolutionaries brought you know, important experience that allowed them to take on high, uh, in some cases, ministerial positions in 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 the post-war government. Uh, so it's it's definitely a a a, a varied spe spectrum of experiences. Um, but we knew a little bit about how some of those high-profile former revolutionaries went on to have spectacular political and sometimes economic careers. And so the book can broaden that picture and look at some of the figures who haven't made. Um, uh, haven't made uh, those, those accounts and we've just yeah. known much much less about them let's let's actually now transition to the afterlives themselves and before we get into some of the details uh, you talk a lot i think in a very interesting way about kind of the subtle ethnography that you needed to do when you're trying to do this research in an environment where there is this enforced silence. Tell us a little bit about the about your research itself and how you were able to begin to get access to these memories and, and these um, experiences. This was certainly a, a very challenging project in terms of fieldwork and then also in disseminating the research later. And I uh, was fortunate in having a chance to meet some former revolutionaries, uh, but of course I met you know, a small number of them and uh, our conversations were always constrained. All Omanis are under surveillance, but former dissenters experience particular forms of surveillance. So there were some ways that I could work within those constraints. One was to you know, acknowledge that Dafaris had the greatest experience in how to navigate uh, those conditions of surveillance. And so putting the onus on them to set the direction for conversation by asking open questions, for instance. And that also meant that sometimes the revolution never got mentioned because I mm -hmm. might ask a question with, with euphemistic terms that gave the initiative to the person I was speaking with to decide if they wanted to take it in the direction of talking about the revolution or, or avoid that. And of course, the revolution is not just politically sensitive. It was a time of, of violence and some people have traumatic memories uh, from that. So that is another reason for, for great caution. But there were certain other ways as well um, that I could move within these constraints. And there, of course, younger generations who have relatives who were part of the revolution and in general, I found that people who at that time uh, did the fieldwork in 2015, uh, those under 40 were who hadn't directly experienced the um, counterinsurgency themselves, were more willing to use words like revolution rather than the government preferred word, uh, which is uprising or rebellion. Um, of course, the fact that I visited after 2011 might have had an impact there because in many countries across the region, people started using different kinds of vocabulary after the, the Arab Spring protests. Uh, so um, so that, that those were some of the um, you know, opportunities within constraints uh, during the fieldwork. And um, of course, my positionality as a British researcher um, was also uh, significant uh, because it was a British-led uh, counterinsurgency. And then there were also lots of questions about how to write up and um, here, of course, it's very important to do everything you can to uh, anonymize people. And some of those uh, 
some of that work in the book involves sort of split I you know explain that I do this I split one person across several pseudonyms or I might flag that there's a fictive pseudonym who's bringing together several people's words so there was a certain amount of introducing noise but I also took the approach in the book to only write about the kinds of uh, empirical material that's already known within Oman and to the people who surveil Omanis so that the book doesn't make new empirical uh, revelations. Um, so I really had to um, make some, uh, you know, difficult decisions uh, about um, how to, you know, put the the yeah. um, the safety of of people in Oman first. So those are some of the ways that I tried to do that. Yeah, no, I remember um, there's a, a brilliant book about Lebanon uh, written by an anthropologist, and she has this wonderful line where she says, um, "Nobody ever talked about the war." And of course, they were always talking about the war and that yeah. that kind of that subtle, the subtlety of trying to decode like the way two young men greet each other. Uh, one of the examples in your book, I, I just found it really fascinating how, you know, trying to read and decode these things without asking the direct questions, which can get you in trouble or them in trouble. Indeed. Indeed. So what do you think are some of the most interesting things then that you found in terms of the uh, the these afterlives and the, and kind of the enduring impacts of, of these experiences on the people that live through them or the subsequent generations? Mm. I didn't know what to expect when I went out there. And so in a sense, you know, everything was interesting, but to focus on just a few things, just that that very finding that in fact, it, you know, I was able to observe from, from people's friendships, from the way that they, you know, gathered as families, the way they organized weddings for the next generation, the way they attended funerals. So just finding that there was this recurrence of valuing social egalitarianism or social inclusivity uh, amongst former revolutionaries uh, that was distinctive for the wider Tafari context. Um, obviously, with the revolution's big emphasis on social egalitarianism, it was responding to very long-standing social hierarchies in Dofar. So of course, those hierarchies have transformed in various ways, but it's a place where there's a lot of um, informal segregation and uh, often informal um, stratification uh, along lines of gender, tribe, ethnicity, racialized identities. So just finding that former revolutionaries were doing those things differently, uh, was um, you know a very uh, exciting a, a encounter that opened for me this this idea of well you know what kinds of different scales can we look for for the, for afterlives of revolution and how the intimate might be very important especially in a context of, of political repression but there perhaps I can also mention two other uh, ways that um, I think these afterlives really change the way we think about the revolution and its uh, aftermath. So I was very fortunate to learn from another researcher, Miranda Morris, who in the early post-war period had been a development worker in Dafar. And she explained to me that most of the Dafaris working in, in those post-war development projects had been pupils of revolutionary schools where they'd been trained up to value the common good. And so in that early post-war period, after they'd returned to Oman, that revolutionary training equipped them with a willingness to work in projects that would benefit multiple tribes, whereas other Dafaris were more, more reluctant to do so because they'd been closer to government counterinsurgency programs that had distributed resources through tribal networks and that had cultivated tribal rivalries. And they were 
less willing to work in projects that could benefit a tribe other than their own. So, you know, that for me was this, uh, it might seem a small detail, but for me, it's a transformative opportunity for thinking about who are the authors of modernization in post-war Oman. The conventional narrative is Sultan-centric. Um, and of course, we can bring in other factors around you know, the imperatives of authoritarianism, of course, oil money, etc. But to think that actually the nuts and bolts of who was doing the labor relied on people who had a revolutionary training and those revolutionary values, um, it really shows that there's this um, role for revolutionary agency in the post-war period that's otherwise been, been erased in conventional histories. Um, and perhaps I can mention just briefly a, a last example relating to gender transformations, because there was so much attention during the 60s and 70s on women. I don't think I mentioned earlier the women fighters, but you know, especially their images circulated really broadly. And um, Dafar is known today as a very gender conservative region. And um, although it was very difficult for me to meet former female revolutionaries, I learned from other people and other writing about them, about how they've ostensibly led very conservative lives and um, how they dress, how they practice Islamic piety. And so, you know, it might at first seem hard to see these legacies of those gender transformations, but because they came back with valuable educational levels, they participated in labor outside the home in the early post-war period, when that was extremely stigmatized for women who didn't have a lowly social background. And that participation really pioneered female labor force participation for widespread backgrounds. And that's now normal today in Defar. Mm -hmm. So we can see that the you know, outcomes that we you know, might first look for, they might not be there, but there can be other outcomes and they might take several years to appear. Um, but I definitely uh, see that there are legacies of those uh, programs for uh, gender transformation. And I see them as part of the afterlives. Yeah, no, and that's really interesting because you know what really comes out of your of your research and out of your narrative is both the limitations of of the transformations um, as well as these you know kind of more subtle layers where they are, where they're happening beneath the surface. And because I could easily imagine just getting like really, as you said, you know, getting discouraged to discover that they all went back to traditional gender uh, uh, performance. Um, mm. So. Yeah, but it's interesting this the the the, the dance that you describe between kind of the limits and and the realities, mm. and possibly using that conservative behavior to legitimize the um, female labor force participation outside the home, to show that they're you know above criticism as it were. Um, so related phenomena. Yeah, one other thing uh, a vignette which really jumped out at me was the way that people, especially this younger generation, you're talking about have to navigate trying to discover who actually was of revolutionary background um, that, uh, you know, that it's not an obvious thing. And they're kind of sounding each other out as they figure out their tribe, their family, their all that sort of thing, which sort of implies that that would change the way they behaved. Yeah. So I, I wonder, are you thinking about the hospital incident? Yeah. 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 Uh, so um, yeah, this is this is a, a really uh, fascinating story where you know, effectively what happened is there was a young man who was visiting someone else at the hospital, and so hosp I, I I didn't go into a Dafari hospital myself, but people explained to me that intensely social scenes because many many people go and go and visit a patient, and so um, what happened to this young man is, in fact, <laughs> briefly because his parents had 
the kinds of social backgrounds that wouldn't have married outside the revolution. It meant that he spoke his father's language with, a, with an accent. And then another man on the ward was able to recognize that, you know, how come this man is there and he has an accent and, you know, was then able to ask several questions. And as you say, drilling down into more detail about precisely what was uh, the father's name and then you know, embracing the young man and explaining that he'd been in the front uh, with his parents and then explaining naming connections between the two families. So I think absolutely there's a sense in which people are um, very alert, observing, and I'm sure they're observing all kinds of things, but in the context of this revolutionary background, and you know, some Dafaris talked to me about how they had a, in their words, a different culture. And so you can imagine that people, you know, and those are some little insights into how people are attuned to the fact that there are going to be clues that are subtle, but that will open up potentially revolutionary histories. Let's um, maybe one last question. Go back to where you ended your introduction, where kind of the relevance of your of, of this kind of afterlives concept to the post-2011 period. Um, what kinds of lessons do you think we should draw from the Dofari experience as we're trying to make sense of Egypt and Syria and all these other, you know, tragic cases? Of course, it's very important to dwell on how people have experienced loss and, and mourning and, and disappointment. And there is no timeline for moving on from that. But um, it's interesting, I was had the chance to talk about the book with a, a young Egyptian friend of mine. And she explained to me that one of the things the book you know, raised for her is the sense that after all the loss she'd felt around the revolution, the book for her raised questions about everything the revolution had given and can still give. So I think that's part of what we can take from this, this idea that even in uh, the face of massive disappointments and, and loss, there will be transformations that um, will have impacts in, in ways that we perhaps can't clearly envisage at, uh, um, or, or will come into view at different different kinds of timescales. Uh, and also, I think that because in Oman, there were also protests in 2011, including in Dofar and in, in the capital there, Salala, and there were protest chants that, that you know, spoke back. They mentioned the, the 1970s in quite ambiguous ways. So there could also be discussion about what they meant. Uh, but a blogger writing about that time also celebrated the kinds of revolutionary social inclusivity values that were reappearing in those protests. And so I think we can also see how earlier generations' experiences will become future points of, of inspiration and reference. Uh, so in a sense, um, it's an invitation to be open-minded about questioning distinctions about failure and success and that recognizing that there is there are also other stories that go beyond that framework of, of failure mm -hmm. no it's really interesting and i think that is a it's a very promising research agenda kind of across the region um unfortunately um we've been speaking uh with Indeed. alice wilson about her uh recent book uh, afterlives of revolution <laughs> This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and in this week's Spotlight segment, we're going to talk to three contributors to a brand new volume published and released by, by Century International. It's called Shia Power Comes of Age, The Transformation of Islamist Politics in Iraq, 
2003 to 2023. It was edited by Thanasi Kambanis and Sajad uh, Jiyad and brought together a really fantastic group of, of young scholars who've done intensive field research inside of Iraq and trying to grapple with this really interesting question of what Shia politics actually means in the kind of political system that Iraq has developed since 2003. And so we're joined by uh, first by um, by Sajad Jiyad, one of the co-editors of the book. Sajad, could you tell us a little bit about the origins of this project, how it came together, and what you were trying to achieve with uh, with bringing together this particular group of contributors? Hi, Mark. Uh, thank you for hosting us on this podcast. Um, it's great to get some exposure for this, this new book. Um, and I think it's one of the topics that is um, underserved by current work and publications. And I think that's the primary driver for why we decided to pursue this project, you know, three years ago. Um, myself and Thanasi uh, at uh, Century, we discussed a, a couple of sort of topics that we were interested, in, particularly with regards to Iraq. And then obviously these last sort of three years, there's been a lot of upheaval we've had since, you know, the end of 2019, the repercussions of the October protests, uh, changing government, the assassinations of Soleimani Mohendis. We've had um, the caretaker government of, of Kavami, the um, challenge to the election results in 2021, uh, violence in the green zone and, and massive protests um, throughout 2022. And so we, during this period, we thought, well, one of the things that's missing is an explanation for how uh, these Islamist parties, these Shia Islamist parties have managed to remain in power, how they got into power, how they've remained in power, what mechanisms they use, and some of the issues that we think deserve more time in the spotlight rather than just the big headlines around sort of violence and you know changes in prime ministers there's more to it than that and um once we went through those discussions it was really just identifying who we thought would be the best writers who spent time in Iraq who've done field work who know their topics very well that would be able to sort of take part in, in the um, publication and we identified, you know, I think we've got a total of uh, nine authors in, in, in the book. We'd like to have a bit more, perhaps maybe in the future, we'll have a follow-up volume. But the idea was this one was going to focus on Iraq and it's going to sort of explain what has happened, the arc of the development of uh, Shia Islamist parties in the last 20 years and give a reader sort of more insight than what they read on the news um, and an explanation of what these parties are currently doing and what are some of their tactics. For example, you know, we have a chapter in there about the Sudrists and their electoral strategies in Basra. Um, we've got a chapter by Renard, for example, on you know, how violence is a key tool um, in, in forming consensus. Um, we've, we talk about clerical authority as well um, and several other issues that I think come really dovetail really well into the publication. So I'm very happy that you know that it's finally out. And I think everybody who reads the book will find at least one chapter particularly engaging in um, and thought-provoking and something new. And I'm also aware that some people might be critical, might have some feedback um, and not be sort of completely content with some of the, you know, the, the chapters that we have. But that's the whole point. The, it's to drive interest, to drive engagement, to drive a discussion. And I think the volume overall does a pretty good job of that. I love the uh, the title of the introduction that you co-authored with Anasi, uh, Understanding Shia Politics When Everyone's a Shia Islamist. What do you mean by that? So, I mean, I think it's fairly clear to everybody since about 2005, the Shia Islamist parties have dominated politics. And 
really it's very difficult to see any sort of secular, non-Islamist, powerful parties on the scene. And I know the October 2019 protests were maybe the first major signal that there could be a reversal in, uh, in, in, you know, in the future. But right now, it's very difficult to reach the top of politics in Iraq without allying yourself with a Shia Islamist or being a Shia Islamist. And so, you know, we've had some strange alliances from non-Shia, non-Islamist people joining up with Shia Islamists. For example, in, in, um, in the 2018 elections, the Communist Party, right, the Iraqi Communist Party, allied itself with the Sudrists, which is the prototypical Shia Islamist movement in Iraq. And they did that because they understood that the only way to sort of have a chance of getting into power was by allying with a powerful Shia Islamist party. And so that's what we mean by we're saying, you know, if everybody is a Shia Islamist or allying with them, then, you know, we need to understand that they come in all shades. It's not one monolithic block. And there are several reasons why. Some of it is electoral strategies that we just discussed. Some of it is just because of coercive pressure. Some of it is for political bargaining. There's a variety of reasons why. Um, but I think it's really interesting that um, at, the, at this moment in time, we're at the flux of a sort of a change um, in the directions where potentially we could still become even more sort of... Um, not captured, but even more uh, dominated by Shia Islamist parties in Iraq. Or maybe we'll see a pivot and we sort of become post-sectarian in a way in terms of our politics. It's it's unclear. I think part of mm -hmm. it is a generational change. The majority of Iraqis now are born after 2003, right? So there is a change ongoing. I think the book comes at a very good time to describe what has happened and what could happen in the future. Now, Let's turn now to uh, Fanar Haddad, uh, author of uh, what I think everybody agrees is one of the best books written about sectarianism in Iraq and about the concept of, of sectarianism more broadly. And your chapter in this volume, I think it digs deep into this concept of what does it even mean to talk about Shia politics? What does it mean to have, you use the term sect-centric a lot in your discussion. Tell us a little bit about your thinking about this overarching question about what Shia politics means in uh, the context of today's Iraq. Uh, thanks, Mark. Thanks for hosting us. Um, I suppose the the sort of the impulse behind the chapter is somewhat similar to the impulse uh, in Thanasi and Sajjad's uh, title for their chapter. Um, I mean, it, the concept of Shia politics has to be revisited or reconceptualized, given that you've had 20 years of empowerment of Shia-centric actors, Shia Islamists, call them what you will, right? Um, and what the chapter tries to do is to grapple with that. What do Shia politics look like in a context that is dominated by <clears throat> Shia-centric political actors? So to my mind, traditionally, the term Shia politics often referred to a mix of Shia sect centricity and Shia Islamism, right? And it was very heavy on Shia victimhood and um, Shia political entitlements. It was a, a um, counter establishment uh, current that sought to, to achieve some measure of Shia empowerment or righting certain historical wrongs relating to <clears throat> Shia rights and Shia victimhood. Now today, and for the past 20 years, 
sect centricity, Shia Islamism, these are the establishment, right? Uh, these are now status quo actors and status quo uh, currents with increasingly slim constituencies, right? So today you're in a situation where uh, Shia uh, uh, political activism is much less animated by feelings of Shia identity or Shia victimhood and much more animated by anger at a Shia-dominated political class. That, for me, in and of itself, invites us to sort of re-examine what we mean by Shia politics. Um, the other thing is the, uh, the intra- elite divisions that we see, particularly between the Sadrists and what are today the coordination frameworks, so the Sadrists and their Shia rivals. This again calls into question of what do we mean by Shia politics? Because if it's sect centricity, then does that mean we exclude the Sadrists, which surely wouldn't make sense to exclude the Sadrists from any definition of Shia politics. Uh, the chapter also looks at um, the protest movement that Sajjad mentioned, uh, the October 2019 protest movement. Should we, and the chapter doesn't actually come down on a yes or a no, it's an open question. Should we include something like the protest movement of 2019 in our conceptualization of Shia politics, basically as the political field in which Shia Iraqis engage, particularly if they are um, using uh, Shia symbolism, if they're employing Shia symbolism, as the Tishin protests did in many cases, right? Um, but of course, then the flip side is, if you do include them, you risk sect coding, what is an avowedly non-sect specific or non-sectarian uh, movement. So that's like one of the key questions that the um, uh, that the uh, chapter looks at. Basically, I would argue that Shia politics have evolved, whatever, however we define them, they've evolved and matured far beyond the narrow prism of sectarian identity and sectarian victimhood, which used to be the pillars of what we thought of as Shia uh, politics. And hence the term Shia politics should be re-examined and should certainly be, if we're gonna retain it, should be broadened to include that complexity, to capture that complexity that has developed over the last um, 20 years. Uh, though I'm afraid that the chapter poses more questions than it <laughs> does provide answers, but uh, that's part of it, I suppose. But one of those questions is, what exactly is so Islamist about these parties anymore? Uh, and and you're talk, you talk about them as becoming status quo parties without a lot of Islamist legislation or other types of things. So that's the other part that it seems to me you're calling into question about what do we mean uh, to call someone an Islamist when everyone's an Islamist? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because there's a subject dear to my heart. I, I'm, it's not the most fashionable view, but honestly, I think in elite Iraqi politics, I cannot discern uh, a real difference between so-called Islamists and so-called non-Islamists. Uh, not when you consider the collusion and the mutual interests that tie uh, the political classes together not when you uh, consider the very very similar sorts of economic and political behavior that is displayed uh, um, across the spectrum, not when you consider, as you pointed out, uh, the real sort of slim pickings, shall we say, uh, if you're looking for anything resembling an Islamist legislative agenda. And this has been 20 years of Islamist-dominated, supposedly Islamist-dominated parties. 
And I'm not the first to raise this. I mean, Harith Hassan has a, has a piece in Carnegie that was something along the lines of from Islamists to rentier Islamists or something like that, uh, which captures these dynamics well. Where I mean, there's no ideological substance to the so-called Islamist parties today. So I'll give you an example. I once interviewed a undoubtedly someone you'd refer to as an Islamist, a top-ranking, top-tier uh, Islamist. And I asked him, I said, you know, what is it that makes you Islamist just for my benefit? Uh, and he was completely stumped by the question. He just smiled and he was like, well, I was like, well, you know, what's it, how are you different from the non-Islamists? He just smiled and he said, well, you know, we're religious. And that's all he could come up with. Uh, and I don't blame him because, as I said, I really don't think there's much that differentiates them in elite politics, at least, due to uh, uh, that mutual interest, due to similar behaviors, due to the complete ideological emptiness, hollowness of these supposedly Islamist parties. Now, moving from Islamism to Islam, uh, Marcina Shamari has been doing research on the Hausa, on the religious establishment in uh, in Shia Iraq for years. And her chapter in the book, uh, Marcin, you talk about, you know, kind of how do we think about clerical religious authority in this context of a Shia Islamist dominated polity? Uh, tell us about what you what you're thinking as you try and uh, understand this this very difficult concept. Uh, thank you, Mark. So where it all started for me is because of all this talk about Shia Islamists, there's been an adjacent conversation about the lack of legitimacy or the decline of legitimacy in the Shia religious establishment. And the two are seen as being tied because of the religious establishment's role in the post-2003 state. So my paper really comes in and tries to complicate and examine this question in more detail about has the religious establishment uh, in, in Najaf led by Grand Ayatollah Sistani, has it actually declined in authority and influence? And the way that I do that is I try to think about different forms of authority and influence. The original conceptualization of it was that I think about direct and indirect authority, so telling people directly what to do and then influencing them through other channels. And then the other question is over who? Is it over the population or is it over the political elite? Or is it over these so-called uh, Islamist parties that uh, claim to have roots in the religious establishment? And because of methodological reasons, there's only some questions I can answer. As you can imagine, it's very hard to trace the indirect influence of the religious establishment on the political elite because the reason it's indirect is that they don't want to talk about it. So you would have to be very clever in the questions you ask from both sides. And I just didn't have that time for that level of data triangulation to ensure that. So I focused instead on asking the main question about the direct influence over adherence. And then I also looked about the influence directly over the political elite. And then I made some assumptions about what might be happening indirectly. Uh, the first part of this relates to the Tishreen movement. Uh, my colleagues raised a big question of did it really you know, change the structure of the of Iraqi Shiism uh, as a you know unifying force as a political as a political force, particularly in the public sphere. And um, you know, closely related to that question is is this a sign that uh, religiosity, uh, that religious identity and all these things are no longer relevant. And the clearest way for me to, to assess that was speaking to protesters themselves, but also looking at various public opinion, po public opinion polling that we've had from Iraq, and then also speaking to the clerics themselves. And so what I found is that contrary to the opinion that this, the, that public interest and public um, Shia public um, 
uh, interest in the religious establishment and their trust in it is on a steady decline and is, you know, going to continue declining. It actually did decline for a long period, but then at this point, it has reached somewhat of a plateau. And I think there's reasons for this plateau, and some of them are strategic on part of the religious establishment. Um, and I think the biggest symbol of this is that in the protest movement, and I write about this in several places, you did see that a lot of the protesters look to the religious establishment for guidance um, and look to it for legitimation as well. But at the same time, the religious establishment also wanted to protect its position in Iraqi society. It realized that its close ties, perceived or real, to the Islamist parties was tarnishing its reputation, and it really wanted to amend that. And then it did that through several strategies, which is appealing to the public by uh, calling for calm, for elections, for um, an end to corruption, all these things that the protesters wanted and liked, uh, but also by distancing themselves publicly from the political elite so that Grand Ayatollah Sistani no longer wants to meet or wants to be seen uh, with certain members of the political elite and actually is now only seen with more symbolic figures like Iraqi presidents, which is a symbolic position, or with you know Pope Francis, or he's very careful about the signals he sends out. Um, and so this is where Iraq finds itself today. I also ventured into the very tantalizing uh, question of the Najaf veto that I think no one has a very good grasp on. So the Najaf veto is this mythical, in my opinion, um, concept of how the Shia religious establishment is able to veto prime ministers. Um, and the reason they're able to do so is because prime ministers tend to be Shia, and so they can indirectly influence whether or not someone is fit to be prime minister. So we've seen several examples of this. We saw this with Ibrahim and Jafari stepping down, with Maliki being told to step down, and with Adil Abdul Mahdi being told to step down. The key question for me is that do they only have the power to veto someone who they think is unacceptable after they have clearly you know, reached a point of tremendous failure, a sectarian civil war, another, you know, another war with ISIS and then uh, mass protests. Those are very dramatic events. And is it really a veto if you only do it at that point? Um, and then the other question is, can they actually suggest a person that they have to have a seal of approval on it? I, you know, I won't claim to have the answers to these, but I think these are the leftover questions. But my goal was really just to complicate what authority means and over whom and in what capacity. No, it's really interesting. And then on this theme of uh, religious authority, uh, Sajad, your chapter goes deep into uh, into uh, Sistani himself, and uh, which is you know maybe a subset of what Marcin is looking at, but uh, but a pretty important one. Um, tell us about you know your read on the direct or indirect authority that Sistani has been able to exercise these last twenty years. So my chapter looks specifically at Sistani's role post-2014. Um, it's part of a wider work that uh, should be available later in the year, maybe into next year, um, which is just focused on Sistani's role in post-2003 Iraq. But what I tried to do is sort of have a chronological timeline of events, what were his interventions, why he intervened, how he intervened, what the effects were, and then an analysis of, is he a political actor? Can we say he's a, a figure of political authority in addition to religious authority? Um, were his interventions successful? And is there a limit to his authority and power? These are sort of the three main questions that I try to answer in that particular chapter. And I think it's interesting to look at where Sistani did intervene 
why and then when he chose not to intervene and why as well. And I think one of the key themes that comes through is the need to preserve capital. Sistani avoids intervening because he wants to preserve his capital. He intervenes when he thinks he's going to be successful. If he's unsure, he decides not to intervene. And I think that also relates to what Marcin was, was talking about earlier. And I think that ability to you know force a prime minister out is part of that. He intervenes at the time when he thinks his authority or his influence will be heeded. If not, then he decides to remain outside the political game until the right conditions are, are, are presented to him. And um, the arc of his involvements from 2014, the peak, issuing that um, fatwa for people to join the security forces to fight against ISIS, and you know having a mass response to to his to his fatwa, and then you know we see another, for example, um, key intervention. Enforcing Adil Abdel Mehdi, the Prime Minister, out essentially asking him to resign in uh, 2019, late 2019, but then sort of take a step back, and particularly with the opportunity that, that COVID presented, um, deciding to not meet public figures in Iraq anymore, and then even sort of his statements, no Friday prayer speeches anymore, and it seems to be sort of the semi-retirement phase that he's coming sort of to the end of his his career. And has decided, right, I no longer need to intervene as much as I used to, for example, um, pre-2010. And I think in that sense, it's about legacy now rather than him, his actions, what he's planning to do in the future. It's more about what kind of legacy he's leaving for those who follow. And I address that in the um, in the other book that's coming out mm-hmm. about the future of the post-Sistani future and what could happen in Negev, but for Iraq specifically, um, post-Sistani. And that's actually the question. I mean, everybody has been asking for so long, what happens after Sistani um, and what happens to religious authority? And maybe we can, we can actually go back to Marcin um, on this um, in, in terms of this broader question of clerical authority versus the specific question of Sistani's authority. So as someone who was lucky enough to read Sajad's full manuscript, which is excellent and I I must read for anyone who follows this topic, I do defer with him on one key aspect. And I love this debate. It's that is Sistani an exceptional figure or is he a product of the religious establishment? And had someone else been in his position, we would have had a similar course of events. So I think we fall on different sides of this, but, you know, based on what I've what I've researched and what I've seen, I do think that the religious establishment has remarkable longevity and durability and is able to produce and socialize clerics to similar degrees and produces the same kind of figures over time who behave in similar ways, given um, uh, various crises that Iraq face and and Iran um, in, in their histories. So I actually am one of the people who is not worried about the phase of uh, post-Sistani Iraq. I think just as other successions happened before, we'll go through a phase where he has a short-lived successor who is um, 
with similar in age and then we'll go to someone who is younger who will develop a following um, and will you know be in that position for quite a while at first it will seem like there is really no authority and there is you know no one of that gravitas uh, but then after a while that kind of thing develops I mean Sistani didn't immediately have this position in Iraq but what he did have that he lived in Iraq in exceptional times I mean I think people don't understand the degree to which 2003 was a pivotal year for the for the Hausa. it went from from an institution that for centuries um, basic, basically experienced um, Sunni-dominant rule in Iraq, uh, briefly periods of, you know, of various Iranian or, uh, empires that were in favor of Shia rule. But still, those were brief moments, and particularly in the modern Iraqi state, that didn't exist. So it was so accustomed to being either a you know opposed to the state in, in a low-key way or being something that isn't in, in you know in a direct relationship with the state and after 2003 whether they like it or not the Iraqi prime minister is Shia and for the last 20 years has claimed more or less some kind of uh, of ties to the religious establishment through these Islamist parties so it's it's a new dawn and it's it, you know it's very interesting to watch it happen but um I'm one of the people who isn't very worried about uh, post Sistani Iraq I think it will be a very sad day for Iraq but this institution has lived through through great crises before. Interesting. And Sajad, you disagree? You see Sisani as exceptional? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I completely agree with Marcy on the point that it was exceptional times that helped propel um, the system of British authority to the forefront of politics. They couldn't have done that if it was under the previous regime. They weren't able to. Um, in, in, the, in the sense that they weren't able to elevate their authority beyond clerical circles into sort of the national political arena. Um, but I also believe that Sistani is different from his peers. Um, he's different from most of the sort of recent figures of authority that we've had in the last 100 years. You know, he does not speak publicly he doesn't lead prayers he's not seen outside his home um in some senses he's you know he's reclusive um and traditionally that's not what makes a great religious slash political leader you know so if we look at Ayatollah Khomeini for example or even Ayatollah Khoui um going back to Ayatollah Mahsin Hakim Ayatollah Borajurzi you know we're looking at the last 50 60 70 years these were people who were very public figures whose influence over people was an extension of their personality you know they had they were great speakers or great orators they they were able to really energize their communities through their leadership their personal leadership see standing is not like that and also the fact that um the risks that he's he's faced since 1992 since the death of Ayatollah Khoui's predecessor and then post 2000 you know he came up against a superpower the United States was completely in charge of Iraq in 2003 and 2004. Sistani had no official authority. And Bremer wanted to do one thing, and Sistani says, no. And the only way he's going to do that is just by telling people, hey, you should protest. And I think that is different from what we've seen from other clerics in recent history, that he was willing to take those risks, but also that he had the authority to, um, or the influence to get people to really state credibility in, in his aims. And for me, that's what makes Sistani different. But I also agree that, he, you know, that it was the, the circumstances perhaps 
he was shaped, forced into actions that otherwise wouldn't be in his nature. Really interesting. So I want to move um, out of the Hausa now and out of Sistani, go back to Fanar. Uh, you mentioned uh, when you were getting to the end of your, discu your discussion of your chapter that you raise more questions than you answer. That seems appropriate. But I'm curious what you think the biggest of those questions are. Like, what, what do you think are the major things after having engaged in this research, having gone through Iraqi politics and Shia politics over the last uh, decade or so. You know, what do you think like the really interesting questions are right now that scholars need to grapple with, uh, you know, beyond the everyday politics and turbulence and all that sort of thing? Well, a lot of it would be the, the stuff we've been debating now. I mean, I think uh, Marcin's work, apparently Sajjad has a monograph coming out on this, uh, about the, the Hausa after 2003 and about Sistani. I think that's uh, an area that has so far been underserved. Um, and I think there's a lot of assumptions about Sistani and Sistani's authority that could do with some re-examination. This question of is he exceptional or are the circumstances uh, what made him exceptional? I think it's a very interesting topic for the record. I think it's the circumstances that were exceptional that not just altered Sistani, but altered the, the Marjiriya itself as an institution. And I think that people, I mean, this is, a, again, an interesting area to look at. And Masina, I think you're more qualified to do to comment on this than I, will, I am. Uh, but in my opinion, I think that people's expectations of the Marjiriya have changed uh, in the last 20 years. Um, and after 20, 2003, after that vacuum in 2003, the exceptional circumstances that followed 2003 uh, raised people's expectations of what a, a merger should do and what the merger is responsible for. Um, there are sort of loose parallels, you could say, with like 1991, where you have this rebellion that emerges in, in southern Iraq, also northern Iraq as well, but in southern Iraq, uh, you have this rebellion that emerges. And uh, for want of either out of habit or for want of an alternative leadership, rebels would, you know, instinctively look towards the merger of the day, um, Abu Qasim al-Khoury, who was extremely reluctant to take on this role. Uh, now, that episode only lasted two weeks, whereas with 2003, it's such a structural change in Iraq. As I said, I think it actually changed the parameters of the merger as an institution. Um, and I think that that sort of studying the Marjaya as an institution would be fascinating. I think the Marjaya's economic dimension has been sorely understudied. Um, it's not the easiest field to get into. I think it's one of Iraq's biggest red lines. Um, <clears throat> but the economic dimension of the Marjaya is something I think I'd love to see some work on. Now, for now, drawing on your chapter and kind of, again, moving out of the Hausa, it seems to me there's two big questions that emerge from your work, that you, you take positions that I think people will find interesting. One is on uh, Sadr and the Sadrists and your characterization of them um, in relation to Islamism. And the other is on the Hasht and the uh, and, and how that fits into this broader architecture of Shia power and Shia politics. And maybe you could say a few words about each of those uh, before we wrap up, because I think those are really big questions that a lot of people looking at Iraq really don't understand. I certainly struggle to make sense of it myself. Uh, perhaps can I ask you to just uh, specif specify a bit more what, what you want about the Hashd and the Sadrists? Well, the Sadrists, uh, you, you characterize them, you ask this question of, you know, 
would we then define Sadr as not an Islamist? That makes no sense. And you you talk about him as more of a populist leader and, um, you know, even a personality cult in a way, um, it, which is a way of like positioning himself in this broader appeal that he's tried to he's tried to cast as being outside of like the general contours of the Shia Islamist parties. And, uh, you know, it seems like a, a kind of an audacious strategy within this broader context of, as you put it, sex centricity and, um, you know, victimization politics and all of that. And so with Sadr, it just seems like there's interesting things going on there that are that are non-obvious. Well, I mean, the the main thing about Sadr and, and the chapter is that if we reduce, if we stick to sort of traditional understandings of what Shia politics entail, then you risk excluding Sadr from that. Right. Uh, because although he is part of the uh, political landscape and um, still, despite his withdrawal from politics, is still part of the political establishment, he very much positions himself against them, at least in terms of his rhetoric, right? Uh, so... Uh, sorry, I just saw a message here. Uh, oh, actually, since since Marcin mentioned this, so Marcin just put up a, a message saying um, inclusion moderation would be interesting to look at with regards right. to Iraq. Uh, I'll get back to this other stuff, I promise. Um, I agree, and that's something that we've been discussing in Morton Valbjorn and uh, Jerome's group, the, the other Islamists group. And one thing that uh, strikes me that's interesting in that, in terms of its contribution to the field of the literature on Islamism and inclusion and moderation, mm -hmm. I mean, the problem in Iraq is, of course, they're all included, right? So the whole spectrum is included in terms of electoral politics. What you see in Iraq, rather, is uh, you can call it empowerment moderation. So mm. when the coordination framework and their friends were not so securely in power, uh, say, during the... Uh, Calum caretaker government, um, you know, their rhetoric was all about kicking out the Americans and they'd throw missiles at the green zone and, 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 right? Um, and these, these splinter groups, supposed splinter groups were sprouting up like mushrooms, uh, these militant splinter groups, uh, and all that. Uh, whereas now that the coordination framework is empowered in government, is leading government, you see all that rhetoric kind of just fizzles away. You see that moderation in rhetoric. So in Iraq, it's not so much about inclusion in elections, because they're all included in elections. Uh, it's more about this issue of um, empowerment, which brings us back to the Southerners quite nicely, because I honestly don't know, I can't make sense of the Southerners today. Um, I mean, it strikes me that Sadr made a gamble in uh, the summer of, what was it, 2022, right? Um, and it backfired. And I'm tempted to think that until now, Sutter doesn't know how to bounce back from that. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think anyone really knows, anyone, anyone, anyone beyond Sutter himself, what the next move is going to be. Uh, the withdrawal from politics, um, the withdrawal of his MPs, which was a very, very misguided step. Uh, I mean, he, he could have, he could have uh, created the majority government that he was calling for by becoming himself the former parliamentary opposition, which he didn't do. How they will get back into politics, what his next move is going to be, I mean, it's impossible to say, but certainly something to watch out for, because uh, he remains, I think, a very important uh, figure in uh, the Iraqi political landscape. 
Well, it's, it's so interesting. Um, we uh, are unfortunately out of time, so I just want to thank uh, Fanar Haddad, uh, Sajajiad, and Marcin Shamari for talking to us about this new book, Shia Power Comes of Age. This has been the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'd like to thank Marcino Shamari, Sajad Jiyad, Fanar Haddad, and Alice Wilson for joining us to talk about their research. Look forward to seeing you next week. Da-da-da.